Um, what are the respective consequences of too soft of pellets and too hard of pellets? So, so back to pellet durability or hardness, I think ultimately what we want to remember is we're trying to, to create a measure to predict the intact pellets in front of the bird in the feed pan. Um, so anecdotally, you, you hear all the time that too hard of pellets are problematic. I've heard that uh, for years about um, turkey crumbles. I, I hear, well, the crumbs are too hard and, th and there's an issue. I don't know of any research uh, where, where they've looked at that. Uh, in my own lab, we've looked at some different uh, variations in, in pellet quality and we fed them to birds, um, euthanized those birds, necropsied those birds, and it doesn't appear that those pellets are really intact uh, very much past the, the crop of the bird. It seems that they dissolve and you're dealing with more microstructure than macrostructure at that point. Um, but uh, not to say that that's, that's not an issue. I, I just am not aware of the data. But sometimes a, a soft pellet can be just as durable as a hard pellet. If uh, there's a, a you know, kind of a, a more soft consistency that can absorb some of those pressures. I mean, you're just trying to to create a pellet that's going to handle uh, those conveyances through the mill, in the truck, out of the truck, and throughout the house. And, you know, can that pellet, can the structural integrity be maintained so that those birds see that whole intact pellet and therefore able to, to grasp that whole intact pellet? And, and I really think one of the, the greatest um, factors in, in feeding high quality pellets is, is the improvement in intake. I think that's what drives a lot of these performance benefits. The birds are simply able to consume more feed. And, um, you know, with our genetic lines continually improving, um, the birds just seem to be able to eat more and more and more. And uh, that, that high pellet quality helps them to do that. Some, some, this is anecdotal, but in my other life, I used to, in working in production, because of market circumstances, we have to switch to several different roller beater uh, uh, lines. And there were there were a couple of them that were very sensitive to the changes in texture. The, the texture of the feed. If we went from like a fine crumble to a coarser one, they they would not eat as much of the exact same formulation. So that, that's something that then goes along with whatever you've grown. You know? Have you seen that too? So, so I have seen that with, um, with some birds that, that I've had to feed small crumbs initially and then a larger crumb before introducing pellets. Uh, and then it's very interesting because uh, there's research out of Mississippi State currently that's showing uh, different genotypes that are able to handle pellets from day one. So I, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's got to be uh, strain differences or, or line differences uh, for, for these birds. Yeah, normally we try to get the birds in a, in a, like a form of feed that they could swallow. And the, the, the starting of the pellet was very much soft. You know, you start on pellets as soon as you can, but you need a certain size bird to be able to swallow a sure. pellet sure, for makes... most birds. Sure. Maybe there's some birds that I haven't worked with that can swallow pellet from day one, but but majority of the birds would grow. They they don't even try it, you know. I mean, it's it's difficult. 
So it's three, four weeks before you start feeding pellets. Interesting. Or, or maybe mini pellets, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, just, just one question. Sure. And uh, I don't know that this may or may not have been tried. Is there anything that you can do to the fat that during the feed manufacturing that will come in the way of pellet quality? In terms of a, a lot of things can happen from the initial quality of the fat to oxidation during the process because you add something. What are your thoughts about it? So, so I, I don't have a good answer to that. I can tell you that at the university, I'm very limited in what I can get for fat sources. So typically I'm getting soybean oil. Um, we did a lot of work with some integrators, some turkey integrators, and I was able to get animal vegetable blends from a rendering plant and we utilized those fat sources. But we've, we've never compared fat sources and I've, I've never looked at anything as far as differences in, in antioxidants or uh, stabilizers or, or, or anything like that. But I, I certainly appreciate that there are great differences in fats and, and also palatins that are used in different fat sources. And um, that's a, it's definitely a, a large area that, that I don't have as much familiarity with. Hey Enrique, what I have seen in other mills is the fat source itself might be a little bit different. If you're working with animal fat, for example, it's, it's solid at ambient temperature. If you're managing just oil like you know, yellow grease or other uh, restaurant grease oil, it's, it's been heat treated, you know, kind of hard already. It's it's a uh, it's a liquid in ambient temperature. So at the end product, if you're like fat coating or something like that, uh, the animal fat had a tendency to uh, make a little better pellet because it's yeah. not kind of pulling out of the pellet. It kind of solidifies and give you a nice coating versus just a, a yellow grease generic you no know, fat. Yeah. No, I understand that. I, the question was. Could there be something that happens to the fat when you mix? Because you mix it with something that would change those abilities yeah, of yeah. fat to improve the pain. Okay, got it. Yeah. I mean, the way I always look at it is is that you're you're trying to gelatinize as much starch as possible. You're trying to gel as much protein as possible, and the more fat that you add, you're just uh, you're you're decreasing the opportunity for those two reactions, right? I mean, you're you're coating those particles, and instead of having that bridging. Uh, of, of of ingredients or of nutrients, uh, you're, you're decreasing that. So I, I don't know. So maybe thought about levels of free fatty acid, but I'm not sure about it. If it's more rancid, it is. But it's going to have more issue of trying to make a better pellet. I haven't, you know, read on it. Um, we have tried a lot of fat in different places, but uh, that might be an issue. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about it. It, but it's an uh, I, I, I do agree. The more fat you have, the more you cover the, pot, the feed particles. The more difficult it is to have the moisture kind of penetrate the feed particle and have the gelatinization or the cooking process. That's correct. At the end, you're gonna have the moisture there, but it's not really integrated into the feed particles. Basically, they're kind of floating over it. And yeah. another question was: Remember, I'm a nutrition ignorant veterinarian. <laughs> another question was. Is, is there any reason or thoughts about the order, how you add the fat in different circumstances, like with various, if, if you, for example, have a, 
a dive with no weed or with weed, is, is there a consideration for the order, how the fat comes in the mix? So I, I believe to create the best mixer profile, we want to we want to do a dry mix and a wet mix, right? We want to mix our macro ingredients first, uh, add our micro dries, and then do our wet mix last in last order. I have never heard of, of any strategy that, that varied from that. Um, so if, if there if there are people doing something different, I, I have not heard of that. No. In terms of managing the moisture in the feed, uh, what have you seen more in the industry? You know, it's, it, is it properly managed at the conditioning level or are you seeing that uh, people working uh, trying to balance that between at the mixer level with the conditioner or? Yeah, so I said this last week in, in my symposium. I, I think that feed manufacturer certainly has, has become uh, more sophisticated. So I think people are, you know, mills are, are looking much more at, at ingredient profiles and, and nutrient profiles prior to manufacture. So I think that is getting much better. It's it's by no means where it should be. Um, but, but I think they're much more aware of what these incoming ingredients look like um, in, in trying to make adjustments. But uh, boy, it is hard. It is just hard to predict, I think, especially when, you know, when you have these large bins and, and you get these crazy weather conditions where you've got cool nights and warm days and moisture migration occurs. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're running right on the edge and really trying to make a, a high quality pellet and putting as much moisture as possible, and then you hit that pocket of corn <laughs> that's a little bit more wet and you slip the dye and, and it, uh, yeah. it, it's tough. Now you mentioned that we still need to do, that you made a comment, not, that we are not where we need to be, what you're referring to. So I, I think it would be great to have more inline capabilities of, of understanding moisture. I mean, that, that would certainly make this less of a guessing game. Um, you know, I, I feel bad for uh, pellet mill operators. You know, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not making the decisions, but the expectation is on them that they've got to run these formulations as fast as possible and make a high quality pellet. And um, it, it's difficult. You're going to be more conservative in that position. And, and pretty much everybody that I've worked with, uh, in order for me to get that individual to, to change the way that they're making feed, I need to get the feed mill manager or something at a, a very high pay grade to come in there and force this <laughs> upon them because that you know, they, they don't want to plug the die. They don't want to be down and, and have these issues. So, you know, you, you feel for them. Yes, that's correct. Once they're in the comfort zone, that you don't want to challenge the, the mill because you're concerned about having a plug up and there's a lot of variation. They just working with the recipe that they just got. They don't have any influence on that recipe sure. or how they want it served. So basically they just get it. I need to cook it and serve it. Sure. But they sure. don't have anything else to no say on that side and it's difficult for them. So sort of on that topic, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what are some common interventions um, that, you, that are used to improve quality? So it, it's, uh, I mean, the easiest thing to do is to slow down. But as I said, when you slow down, <laughs> you're, you're going to hurt your production rate. And then you also uh, have a situation where you could be creating too much pressure and frictional force in the dye that could be negative in terms of nutrition. Um, and, and then, of course, we can manage our, our moisture. 
much better and we could add moisture in, in the mixer to try to, to reach an optimal level and, and make that jive with our ambient conditions and with our steam quality, et cetera. Uh, there are some other feed additives that we could utilize that, that uh, you know, in, depending on the situation can work or, or um, work better in certain situations than in others. Um, th there needs to be good communication, I think, between the nutritionist and the live production managers, and that information needs to be related to the feed mill. Uh, and, and I think that's getting better as well. At least the older I get, and the more students that I have and the more interaction, it seems that there are there seem to be more meetings that are going on that they're more inclusive of uh, all the players in, in the integrated operations. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Moritz. I very much appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Sure, sure. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Well, you all have a great day.